Well, yes. Um, I, I'm going to have to take your lead on this, uh, Axel. It seems uh, the, uh, to me that the effectiveness of this special operation has won its way because of its effectiveness. European politicians are very carefully not even moving there. They're not even discussing it much. And by the way, no, no. Should they discuss these raids much or should they just let this happen? What do you say? Hello, everyone. Uh, sorry for a bit of a delay. Yeah, but you, um, you snug in nicely. So let's do the question. What do you think? <laughs> should, they just, should they just let it happen? Does it work so well? Uh, I think, I believe that um, to great credit of European chancelleries, we haven't seen a single word. And we've discussed this last week. Uh, first of all, what's important, uh, everyone, uh, good to be here, good to be back for another edition of our uh, Undisclosed Location segment. Um, we haven't seen a word coming out of European chancelleries, as we said last week, about this. We've seen it from uh, Washington. Uh, the the U.S. press secretary um, saying she does not condone attacks into Russia. And the administration is very clear it doesn't condone attacks into, into Russia. But the, the European political community uh, gathered uh, very um, effectively, let's put it this way, in Moldova. Uh, didn't say a single word about this. Actually, uh, Zelensky was present. Uh, he met with several of the leaders. He met with uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission President, the European Parliament's President, Roberta Metzola, and uh, several European Prime Ministers, and obviously the Moldovan authorities. And not a single word came out of this. Because, as we said last week, uh, first of all, uh, Europe is shifted its position a bit on this, and it's clearly behind what Zelensky is doing. And it, frankly, creates more problems for U.S. politics than European politics. Um, also... Uh, the politics of the Russians in question, both the RDK and the Russian Legion, create some issues for the Americans, which I found I find very interesting. But apparently, uh, European chancelleries uh, are more uh, bullish on. Let's put it this way: to use a, a market term, are more bullish on these operations than. Uh, the Americans are. Uh, Biden apparently got rid of the debt ceiling problem, which is uh, clearly uh, good news. And with that said, he also hinted during the week at the possibility of attackums being on the table. So in political terms in the US, I think there's uh, probably room for additional measures if the if the the Senate passes the bill 
regarding uh, the debt ceiling, we'll be entering the discussion of uh, continued support for the US, which is obviously, um, for Ukraine, sorry, which is obviously uh, very relevant. I think, um, honestly, at this point, uh, these operations create more issues for the Americans than they create for the Europeans. As we said last week, I mean, it's it's. I know it's for some people maybe it may be strange, but it's uh, it is what it is, uh, and it has to do with internal U.S. politics most of all. And uh, that's good, isn't it? That, I think that's it's fine. We can we can segregate fine. the real action from what is now actually, and there, there is something that's happening. It's the disassociation of certain part or certain parts of the domestic discussion, the silly season in the US, upcoming for the elections from the topic of Ukraine. That's a, and, it's and, unique, isn't it? And a funny, uh, interesting tidbit on that is we're seeing a very interesting moves because it was a European country that broke the long-range strike uh, taboo, let's call it this way, the Great Britain, uh, the United Kingdom broke that broke that uh, that taboo uh, of supplying long-range assets. The European Union, funny enough, this week called for uh, the supply of long-range. Um, strike assets to Ukraine and it was the Europeans who broke uh, the F-16 um, taboo too. So in a sense, we are seeing a certain I wouldn't call it yet the coming of age, but uh, we are seeing a more assertive uh, posture by European countries. I think uh, funny enough, I think a great deal of it has to do with a clear shift in German politics. And that has been uh, important, more important than sometimes people believe it to be, uh, because Germany holds considerable influence and power uh, in the construct of the European Union, obviously not only for its economic position, but also its political weight. And to an extent, uh, that shift um, made things, uh, that shift alongside with a very um, robust uh, support by the, the United Kingdom has tilted uh, this into, uh, this war into a more, uh, robust European approach to it, uh, permitting things that basically uh, we're not, uh, as you've seen with the drone strikes into Russia, with we'll get to there, with these Belgorod operations, there's nothing out of European chancelleries about any of this. I don't know if people have noticed, but I've been quietly looking for it, and there's not a single peak that's why I Goodbye. teased it up for you. That's exactly why I teased it up for you. Because this silence is telling. Yeah. We don't care. 
we know they're, as I said here last week, yeah, we know these aren't the Russians we wished for. I had a very good friend um, who made probably one of the most awesome comparisons regarding tools. I wrote uh, about this uh, last week uh, in a column. Um, and she made a, a, a very interesting comparison to me, a very good friend. She said, and she's uh, a person that's not a military person. It's someone who is a close friend, but is more political uh, uh, side of things. And she made a, a comparison. I thought it was awesome. And she's hardly a hawk. Uh, like me or uh, uh, anything like that but uh, she said well uh, we fight we make a salad with the, the, the tomatoes we have we could hope for some biological uh, uh, self-sustained tomatoes to appear but in the meantime we need to make a salad with the tomatoes we have or we are not going to eat the salad anytime soon so I think that sums up the um, the vibe regarding these Russians in particular and the Belogorod freedom, the freedom, the operation to free the Republic of Belogorod. And so uh, it's it's um, an interesting proposition, and I think uh, we have seen today uh, again. Uh, this operation is apparently still ongoing uh, for what I can tell and uh, interesting enough uh, we've seen it a more robust operation uh, than we've seen previously in other in the other um, uh, rate the previous raid, it's more robust, it's still ongoing, it apparently involves armored vehicles, even helicopters, I'm not really sure about that, um, but Russians remain and continue to have major, major problems. Um, securing uh, those borders. And those borders um, are uh, absolutely uh, porous borders as the um, the, re the legion and uh, the RDK have proven and it has so they are the second having an effect on the Russians. I agree with you, but Nuno, but they are currently the second best border guard at the Russian Ukrainian border, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, uh, uh, interesting enough, uh, we are seeing, first of all, on the military situation, Axel, and if I, if you permit me, as long as you yeah. don't defend Macron here today, everything is fine. Uh, actually, because Macron his statements were quote, indefensible hmm, kind of uh, the guy is, is Macron is being Macron, don't worry um, I, I know, we agree we agree on it 
He is unique. <laughs> he is unique. So please carry on. The guy, the guy who does the right thing, but uh, uh, sometimes wants to dwell into the high strategic things and then uh, makes a mess of the speech, which is kind of strange. But anyway, I'll ask. Okay, no, no. You started this. I will ask you the question. What do you think François Mitterrand would have thought? Looking at what Macron does. Please shut up. Merci bien. <laughs> yeah, please shut up. Please don't say anything. Uh, let someone else do the talking. Um, yeah, that's what Mitterrand would... Uh, would... Mitterrand was a very different kind of character. Um, Macron... Strangely enough, also, this summit in, in Moldova came from a French proposal of the European extended European political uh, community, which is, this is the first uh, materialization, let's put it this way, of that concept. And apparently, it's working well. Uh, strangely enough, in uh, beyond Macron, the 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 strangest character in in that meeting, in that uh, summit, and uh, that's one of the things in politically I'd like to talk about, is Vucic from uh, Serbia because the guy was there. At the same time, but he was. He is, that's good. He, that's yes, very good. Yes, it's, that basically tells us that all that Serbian. Um, destabilization in in Kosovo is just uh, for show. It's the usual escalate to de-escalate that nothing will come out of it. And the moment uh, K4 uh, activated the rapid reaction force and poured another 700 guys into Kosovo overnight, things uh, quiet down a bit. It will remain tense because that's uh, the way of uh, Serbians and some of the local Sus, not all on the Serbians, frankly. But uh, that destabilization will, that will continue now that we are at it. And, but Vucic knows one thing, knows two things, actually. One is actually three things, sorry. Uh, one is he's facing protests at home. We've seen some robust protests against his rule in, in Serbia. So that's one. That's one of the reasons this came up. The other reason he knows is he cannot go to war with, the, with, uh, uh, with NATO again. The forces arrayed there around Serbia are <laughs> very impressive. They wouldn't stand a chance. If they didn't in 99, right now they would get uh, torn apart, especially because Russia can't help. Russia can help it. Russia can help itself in Bel- in in Belgorod. So Russia has nothing uh, to send Vucic to help him beyond good words and uh, Lavrov stirring some stuff up. But honestly, they can't do anything about it. So Vucic is aware of this. The fact that he was in Moldova is politically a good sign, even even if uh, tensions in the Balkans will remain. 
I have no doubt about that. That's the way he conducts business. But the guy is facing some serious backlash internally, so that may um, we may have a chance to get rid of uh, Mr. Vucic sooner rather than later. But we'll see about that. Regarding the military situation, and I don't know if you want to say anything about Vucic, Axel. Now that we are already talking no, about no, that, no, 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 we'll come to that later. Let's let's go through the military side. I just I was. I was happy to hear from you that um, I don't know. Let's let's carry on. It, it's good. It's perfect. <laughs> so, regarding the military situation, the military situation. If uh, anyone has, um, I'll share to the Nesta map. Um, the uh, to the Nesta the space. I'll share a map because the military situation is um, very interesting in the sense that across the contact line, there's not much movement. There's some back and forth offensives in the north, uh, around uh, Gansk, uh, mainly uh, in uh, Vorchina. It's up north in... Uh, Lugansk, but honestly, there's no um, really a large uh, movement of forces uh, in. Uh, there's no uh, big operations ongoing for now in the front. It's pretty, let's call it, um, it's kind of quiet. So I'll share here a map by uh, military land that um, that I had prepared for this before entering the space and you uh, ambushed me with Mr. Uh, with Macron and Vucic well, well, well. I ambushed <laughs> well, I ambushed someone who's been in the yes well yay you ambushed me you ambushed me um, and, but this map is interesting in this sense, if you look at it, it's it's a general map. Unlike the more granular maps I've shared previously, it's now in the nest. Uh, it's a more it's a, a situation map of the whole uh, theater because you look at it and you'll see. And I encourage everyone to look at it, and you'll see there is no major fighting beyond the usual stuff. Around uh, Bakhmut, uh, northern uh, Kupiansk, Batov, uh, Sviradonetsk, but just fairly localized operations, nothing too much ongoing. Now, what does that tell us? First, Russians are, in terms of offensive uh, power, are facing. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't. I would like. I wouldn't call them as they have. I wouldn't say they have culminated in terms of um, offensive potential. They probably have not. But, but there's no significant uh, combat power uh, available to Russia, and they're facing a dilemma. Because someone is invading Russia. 
the only um, true uh, mention of offensive operations I saw, beyond some artillery shelling and some minor advances, was uh, Mr. Alundinov of uh, Kadyrov's uh, Akhmat Special Forces saying they're preparing for uh, offensive operations near Marinka. Well, this is worth what, whatever you think it's worth. Um, I haven't seen the Chechens involved in any major combat operations along uh, during this war. They've made up some good movies, some good TikToks, but they haven't been really uh, a determined a determining force. Unlike Wagner, for, for instance, which apparently is really withdrawing from Bakhmut, and we'll get to uh, what what has become a staple of this program, which is Mr. Prigozhin. But there's no uh, major offensive operation by the Russians. And there's not yet major offensive operations by Ukraine. Not even uh, in the flank of Bakhmut. So I would, in my assessment, say that we are um, on the brink of the counteroffensive. Zelensky said during this week, President Zelensky came out and said that uh, orders have been uh, given to Ukrainian um, forces. And we've seen equipment arriving, more equipment. Apparently, there's uh, additional equipment that sh- is not supposed to be there already there. Ryan Metal cooked up a hundred Leopard ones out of the blue. Strange, isn't it? Uh, something that was supposed what? to be what? delivered. What? Somebody cooked up Leopards? Mm-hmm. You saw, I believe, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Ryan Metal said that the Leopard one that was supposed to be delivered by the end of the year uh, will soon be in Ukraine, most of them. That's about a hundred of them. Yeah. So I would say, I would they're say coming. They're there. the ninety-nine are uh, ready, and um, uh, if they are not shipped uh, this week, then some of them will still be shipped next mm-hmm. week. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, shipped next week. Next week, prior may have been shipped before that. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Things are appearing in Ukraine that aren't supposed to be there. I would say that it's not the only surprise. There's a few more. There's one particular surprise in that instance, but that's for that's when it comes, it comes. Um, which doesn't sound great, but uh, for uh, a family program, but um, it's it's uh, there's we are we are standing on the brink of the beginning of major operations by Ukraine. We saw some deep fires and some shaping operations really uh, amped up during this week. We saw some deep strikes in Mariupol, in the south particularly, Mariupol, Melitopol, uh, Berdyansk, 
we saw some deep strikes there. We saw also irregular activity again. And obviously, we saw another instance of the Belogorod Rift. And a more a pressure by Russians into the Russian border in, and into Russia, which gives, which is, as I said, a political operation last week in an information warfare operation. And it's also what the Russians would say. It's a deception in the sense that it's intended to draw, uh, to create a, a problem for Russians where they need to draw forces for that border, to protect the border. That's, I think that's the main, the main military objective of it. The other objectives are political information warfare and are also um, objectives that are very well um, established by Ukraine. This is not a, oh, how would I put it? This is not a something that's not tied into uh, into the um, into the overall plan of the counteroffensive. It's obviously a part of it. It's not. It's not like the New York Times almost said. It's a uh, poor uh, Budanov going. General Budanov's people going almost rogue. No, and this is part of a, a large plan because uh, a plan can be conventional, unconventional, and everything else at the same time, right? Uh, war is fought in all domains the political domain, the information domain. Uh, it's fought uh, in the conventional war domain and it's fought in the irregular and special operations domain across the spectrum. Uh, sorry, across uh, air, land, sea, space, and cyberspace. So this is uh, basically a tenet. The, these operations to Belogorod are part of Ukraine's counteroffensive plan. Make no mistake about it. I know that there's a lot of talk about how this uh, is not really a counteroffensive. It's just a revenge raid. No, man, it's none of, none of that. It's part of their planning for the counteroffensive. I I think that that needs to be said absolutely clear. Okay, um, it's something that uh, a lot of people are um, writing something that. Sometimes I find astonishing because people should know best. Uh, and Ukrainians have proved time and again that they don't do this uh, out of... Uh, this isn't Russia, right? Where Prigozhin fights his war and the MOD fights his war and Kadyrov fights its war and all the other PMCs fight their war. And it's uh, just it's a collection of small... Operations in a larger operation. This is much more than that. It's uh, uh, part of the overall counteroffensive plan. Could we call it a shaping operation too? I'd say yes, we could. It's in a sense, it's a shaping operation because it's um, it's based on actually uh, what a friend of mine you, uh, uh, who's very well versed in political warfare says is. 
uh, one of the applications of reflexive control, uh, which is a Russian playbook active measure that uh, pertains to making the enemy could pertain one of the, the aspects it has is making the enemy uh, react in a certain way. In this particular instance, reacting by moving forces to expel the, the RDK and the Legion. And the strange part of all this is not even that they were able to do. Where's Ross Guardian? Right? Completely unseen, like parts of their Air Force. Absolutely. Where's Ross Guardian? Isn't Ross Guardian uh, the um, go to unit for this? Right? Isn't it? I thought that the Russian National Guard, under command of the FSB, was the, the go-to unit for this, the, to, to stem insurgencies and keep internal security and border control and all that. Where is it? Except for if he's very frightened, he may not want to send them there because they will never be looking after him, would they? I don't think so, David. I actually think Rose Guardia first is a bunch it's a bit depleted. And then and the second thing is Rose Guardia is needed to keep stability in other regions of the country. And they expect the military to take care of it, but apparently we're again a few hours into this and no really big uh reaction by Russia or no significant, meaningful military capability in their own country. Okay, this is important to look at. Let's go to M. Salam alaikum, my brother. How is Cairo? Alaikum salam, Nunu. Cairo is good. We had a sandstorm earlier today. But yeah, basically you uh, beat me to my question, which is how do you see the role of uh, Rose Guardia over the next one to two years inside Russia since they haven't, well, some elements of them have seen some action, but, you know, the, the core itself remains more or less intact. I think Rose Guardia will play a very relevant role um, in uh, the coming instability in Russia. And it's important as the only tool that the security service have retained to stem some of the problems that will happen uh, in in Russia after this. And I may be wrong, but there are significant players who don't want Rosgardia out of the power centers and out of that role and into this border fighting. And you just stolen my second question, which was going to be, do we have enough information on the more effective generals or the more meaningful generals or the more aspiring generals to join the high table within Rosgardia? I don't have any information on that. I don't know if you do, but I really don't. I really don't. But I think that Petruchev uh, and the FSB in particular, because that who controls North Korea to an extent, uh, is pulling an interior minister 
is a very keen not to leave uh, uh, Rosgardia uh, way too much uh, leeway into these operations in the border. Okay, I think that's one of the, um, the interesting aspects of this is you don't want uh, Rosgardia out of Russia too much because it's going to be important if anything I think a lot of stakeholders let's, let me rephrase all this to be clear a lot of stakeholders within Russia are thinking of the future and not exactly the Ukraine war and Ross Guardia as others play a role in this the other player is Kadyrov because he sends battalions and the regiment but you don't see a brigade, two brigades is 10, 20,000 guys you could muster uh, being sent into Ukraine. And that's telling too. Go ahead. Which brings me to my last question. The financiers. There are, there's at least a gang of three or a gang of five that is responsible for most of the financial work done on the back end for Rose Guardia. Do we have any information about that or any interesting you articles off, maybe here off. or there? That... Go ahead. Mike, check. Can you hear me, Em? I can hear I you can both. Hear you, uh, em? I can hear you both. Em, repeat. Can you hear me? Can you hear Felix? I can hear David. I can hear Mr. M. I can hear Nuno. Ah, can you, go ahead. Sorry, I missed your question. M. Go ahead. Which brought me to my third question, which is the financiers. Do we have any information about a gang of three or a gang of five that's more or less controlling all the financial operations on the back end that are financing Rosgardia? I don't think so. I don't have any information on that. Uh, and that's a funny, uh, interesting bit because if you look at um, there's, I think there's one character out here that we haven't um, talked much about, and who's been fairly quiet all along this war, which is Mr. Igor Sechin. For those who don't know, uh, Mr. Sechin is. One of the financiers, well, not exactly Rose Guardia, but one of the financiers of the regime in the sense um, that he is uh, the president of Rosnet. Okay. And Sachin has been um, fairly quiet all along. Uh, what happens to Sachin? Where, uh, what has he been doing? I'm not really sure. He remains, uh, I believe, the head of Rosnet. Um, but in Rosnet is well, a big part of um, the um, the power structure and the the financial structure of the regime. But there's no. Uh, real uh, visibility about this character. He's a former Czechist out of St. Petersburg. He was uh, deputy head of the president of the Russia, of the executive office of the president. He was deputy prime minister. And since May uh, 2012, he's been 
basically uh, the chairman of Rosnet and uh, a critically important part of um, the oligarch structure and the power structure in uh, in Russia. And this guy remains fairly quiet, right? The same with Gazprom. They've raised their own DMC. It's in combat in Ukraine, but it remains uh, fairly, um, let's say, focused on Russia. So that's a very important, that's a good and important take. And did you have any other oligarchs in mind then? No, no, no. You just basically you're following the exact same lead that I'm following. So thank you so much for that. That's perfect. Well, we can help on Sechin yeah. because Sechin is the one who is driving the dark fleet. He is the one who is in charge of making sure that the regime has money. That is his Yeah, job. but someone is, and, someone is allowing him to do that, Axel. Someone is allowing him allowing, to do that, Axel. Sechin, it's not about allowing. Sechin, Patrushev, and Putin all work together since the very early days. Uh, you should never... St. Petersburg, they're all St. Yeah, Petersburg exactly. guys. St. Petersburg. They are the same club. Even, even if Petruchev, even if Petruchev, Nikolai at least, uh, the old man, is a guy that predates even Putin in the, um, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, the security services. Absolutely. He is, he is, he is definitely longer in the service. He was at a different position and he was intricately linked to having made sure that Putin does what he does. So we should be very careful as to oh, yes, who sir. does what and with whom. And it's also not relevant. Sechin is quiet because he's busy. Somebody has to actually yes. do the work. Yes, yes. And, and Sechin is the guy, as you say, moving uh, the oil. Is the guy who's basically guaranteeing that the revenue keeps flowing. And that's, that's an important part. But make no mistake, and I'll say this here, make no mistake that Sachin is an important player in whatever is to come, even if it's a transition from Putin, okay? Sachin is a, a significant um, force uh, in, the, in the Russian system, okay? I don't know if there's any more questions well, I, I, I was going to suggest. I was going to say that thing to not uh, forget is obviously the uh, Praetorian Guard became the the kingmakers eventually. Right? Is that not part of uh, the uh, Rosvardi? Is they not turning into the uh, into that Praetorian Guard? That would be the FSO. Yes, the Praetorian Guard would be the FSO, uh, and and uh, the FSO depends on the presidential administration directly. Not, uh, they do not depend on the FSB structure. Uh, part of the job, actually, of the FSO, which is the federal security service that uh, Putin's um, in charge of the security of Putin himself and others, Part of the FSO's job description has been always to keep a certain balance and check on the other security services. Because as we've discussed here, um, Putin has always tried to 
and that's one of the reasons I believe uh, Prigozhin hasn't suffered any um, early demise is that Putin knows he cannot privilege one major stakeholders, uh, one major stakeholder or the other or others because the regime's stability really depends on and not having uh, any stakeholders or any group of stakeholders enough power to threaten the, the center of of the regime and the, the power, uh, the central power of, let's call it the Tsar, right? To an extent, it's, uh, it's the same, uh, the same uh, power um, distribution or power uh, um, type or or system that the Tsars uh, used to have, uh, where they kept uh, the major stakeholders always weak enough not to be able to threaten the um, the central power. The, in this case, the Tsar. In this case, the president of the Russian Federation. I think that's a that's an important that's an important take. The FSO plays that role in the system of keeping balance uh, with other uh, services and keeping an eye on other services. It was the FSO that uh, conducted the raids on the, on the FSB's fifth directorate uh, early on when uh, Putin realized he'd been uh, basically fooled by the director of the, the foreign intelligence part of uh, the FSB. And, but we've seen the FSB, uh, 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 the, the FSO, uh, remain in Moscow, remain doing their job, uh, and that's another important stakeholder uh, to in whatever struggle is to come. Uh, one important thing I would say about um, what General Budenov is thinking is he is also creating, to an extent. NATO is using the, um, the RDK and uh, the Legion, the Freedom of Russia Legion, as a tool, not only as a military tool and a political warfare tool in the context of the Ukraine counteroffensive and Ukrainian operations, but he's also preparing, uh, I would, at least it, it would be what I, was, I would do, he's also preparing another faction of power in uh, the future of Russia. And that's something people should consider. If this, these groups will not be uh, eventually another force in uh, the, inst- the coming instability of Russia. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Nino. That's very interesting. All right. Shall we go through the battlefield? Uh, Abdullah's got his hand up. Uh, yes, Abdullah. Please go ahead. Obrigado, Nuno. Uh, yeah, just real quick. Uh, what do you make of this uh, kerfuffle between the Kadyrovites and, and Wagner? Are the, uh, is, does this mean that the, uh, the Kadyrovites see this, you know, Brigosian stock falling? Do you know what's going on? What can you tell us about that? Thanks. In salam alaikum, Abdullah. And I would, salam, salam. I would say that um, 
that's frankly that's in my opinion is um it's Kadyrov and his his goons um uh, making um making a play uh, for the boss's attention uh while keeping Prigozhin in check but i'm not really sure uh what what exactly do they aim to achieve on this there's probably some stuff we really don't we cannot uh assess openly but i would say my point with this is where do i want to go with this my point is i think there's a lot of stakeholders that uh at the top level of the regime that are more concerned about the future than exactly the war in ukraine And that's something uh, we've seen from Prigozhin. That's something we've seen from Kadyrov. Um, because Kadyrov um, hasn't committed. Kadyrov could send 10,000 guys or 15,000 guys into Ukraine to fight in Ukraine. Would they make a real difference? I don't think so. Would they be um, important for Russian efforts? Sure, sure. Uh, they're fairly well equipped they're very well trained but they're also loyal to kadyrov himself and kadyrov doesn't want to compromise his forces in a way uh, because he knows that in the next stage of russian uh, problems you may have to use those forces especially if you have other ambitions as kadyrov's uh, looks to have i would say that i would posit that maybe kadyrov has intentions um at other uh, uh, of independence eventually if things go really really south i don't know uh, maybe maybe that's that's important maybe not uh and uh I don't think that Kadyrov uh, wants to compromise his forces and his his tools in a sense to be able to in the future uh have a saying in in what's to come in terms of power because there I I sense and this is a this is difficult to assess don't take this as any sort of gospel because as all analysis it's a it's my personal assessment based on what i read and what i look at that elites in russia are more worried about what comes next than they are worried about the war in ukraine because most of them have understood that they cannot win this war and they're concerned what comes next they sense some sort of uh, they sense that for the first time that the regime may not hold they know instability is unavoidable that's why so many here who, who in the west who say we should there should be a status quo with the russians honestly i would say there's no uh way we go back to a situation of a statu quo ante 
were or a status quo before the invasion because Russia has stabilized itself irremediably, right? It has, it's, it's unstable. It has become unstable and it shows. When they cannot protect their borders, it shows. All the rants about uh, on, uh, from Prigozhin on the border and against the MOD, the guy is smart. He's a ruthless bastard, but he's a smart one. And he's been at the front, whether people like it or not, the guy has been there. He knows what's coming. He has an idea, and we'll discuss what's coming, but he knows what's coming. And as a guy with a keen survival sense, because that's the only way you build an empire in in a system like that, from zero, is not the guy from the security services, he's not a Siloviki, he's not an oligarch. He became an oligarch using the system. But this guy came out of nothing. So he has a keen sense of survival. It's shady. I should think we should whack him when we can. But let's face it, the guy's right. And he sensed that they have a problem. So he's more concerned about what's the future than what's the war. Because in his mind, the war is lost. You just look at his interviews. Uh, when he, he says, well, we're facing you. We, we tried to demilitarize Ukraine. Instead, we've basically created uh, uh, a powerful military on our doorstep. There's no way uh, we're going to subdue this and we should uh, basically um, take what we have and try to to go for a, a frozen conflict. He's not wrong. He knows that when Ukraine launches its major forces into the counteroffensive, and I know people are or, or want to really talk about the counteroffensive, so we'll talk about the counteroffensive. But when they launch uh, the counteroffensive, there's going to be uh, a major, major problem for Russia, and is uh, may basically angling for his place in. The Russian there's that may or not may not have uh, Vladimir Putin as the head of it. That's my my opinion. I don't know what's yours, Axel and David, but that's my my assessment on this. Well, I, I loved the point when you said we can't deal with uh, Russia in the same way. You uh, you it, you don't uh, uh, trust the dog that bites you, do you? You treat them in a very different way afterwards. Um, and you're right, we, we can't go back to uh, uh, the, as it were, despite the fact that it appears we have still some countries that believe that we should. Um, and, yeah, the uh, he, you know, Prigozhin's been right all, all along when he's, when he, when at the point where he recognised, I'm interested that it took him so long to recognise, or maybe he had, he didn't want to say anything, that, it, that the war was lost. Yeah. Um, in complete agreement at the uh, I think, I think for David Prigozhin, uh, first, he, he will, if you look at it, 
coldly, I think Prigozhin changed his mind in Bakhmut. That's where he saw, okay, so we threw everything at this and the Ukrainians bled us here. They fixed us here. Uh, they haven't committed any new forces to this uh, defense of Bakhmut. Uh, they, when we almost took the city, uh, they moved on the flanks with the troops they had here, and we were exhausted. So we looked at it and probably looked, well, I, um, he knows, as the general staff of the, of the Russian Federation knows, that there's an offensive coming. They're not stupid. I believe most of them are uh, anyway. They can look at maps, sure. They can see that Ukraine, they probably have a sense of what Ukraine is up to. Um, they may not know the details, but they have a sense for sure. Even if people always say, well, they have satellites, they'll know everything. I'm not really sure that Russian geo, geospatial um, capabilities are what the Russians tell us they are. I don't think they are, honestly. Honestly. Because Russia, um, if they were, uh, Russia wouldn't struggle to hit uh, command centers and uh, other places. And they wouldn't uh, be facing the problems that we've seen them face. And they know they have a geography problem. You can build so many fortifications, you can build, you can try and hold country, but uh, you don't ha if you don't have sufficient forces, you won't be able to do it. Yeah, uh, not, oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I would add as well, it, it, because he's he was on the recruitment campaign for a long time, he will know their recruitment problems and their supply problems as well, right? Being part of that process, you know, he'll know that if you're losing, he's losing X number of troops and he's going, how am I replacing my troops? He's, he's in, he's in that process. He's trying to do it. So he'll understand all of those, those huge problems that Ukraine isn't getting. They don't have a, a recruitment problem. Uh, they have a problem. They can't train people quickly enough. Yeah, absolutely, Nuno. They have, uh, Ukraine has a man, will have a manpower issue if uh, this war drags on for uh, another year or uh, more than that. That's why this coming counteroffensive is so critically important. And that's why I understand Ukrainians, they won't launch a counteroffensive just because we want them we want them to launch a counteroffensive. They'll launch it when they're ready, right? And there's um, significant, significant um, difficulties in setting up uh, an offensive operation such as this. Uh, mainly stocks, spare parts, foods, water, fuel, all kinds of stocks, ammo, you need to to forward deploy uh, prepositioned stocks to feed the machine once it sets off. So there's there's ample issues with preparing uh, an operation such as this one, right? Uh, uh, and this 
is uh, and this is important and this is is critical right it's it's very it, it takes time to prepare and the fact that you've got to launch an operation with leopard ones leopard twos archers and caesars and all the multitude of equipment to CV-90s and Marders and Bradleys and all sorts of uh, missiles and air defense systems from Patriots, from Stingers to Patriots and everything the West can cook up in between. This is a, a major challenge. Okay, This is a major, major logistic challenge. Uh, and anyone who understands war sees that, well, of course, uh, one unit will have martyrs and another unit will have Bradleys and another unit will have challengers and another unit will have leopards. All fine. They'll be operating on their own. Uh, on their own, I mean, in a, in different sectors, probably, or uh, not as mingled units, let's put it this way, because that's the smart thing to do. But it's still a lot of hardware from different way, different countries, from uh, different manufacturers. And you need to stockpile the necessary spare parts, the necessary ammo. Because what you don't want to do is launch a counteroffensive, be successful, and then not have the stocks, and not have the prepositioned equipment to replace forces into... Uh, keep momentum and to keep exploiting success, right? One of the things we saw with the Russians is they were unable to exploit success because they were fixed in attritional battles. That's what Ukraine will avoid. I'm sure of it. That's what they seek to avoid is uh, not go for the, the attritional battle, but go for the movement war. Um, more uh, more Rommel and less, more uh, Erwin Rommel. Uh, and Yes, exactly. And, and less von Powell, right? Um, that's where, where Ukraine, I know, and I know they're both German commanders, I know, I know. Um, but um, that's it, right? They won't. They don't want to be fixed in attritional battles, and they need to have the ability to exploit success. And the moment you have the ability to exploit success, the only way you can exploit success is basically having enough stocks, enough prepositioned hardware, so you can keep feeding the forces and replacing those you're going to lose. Let's make no mistake. Even with the best gear in the world, the Russians in some places will fight hard and Ukraine will suffer losses. I think we should go to the counteroffensive, what you say, Axel, David. Yes, uh, yeah, that would be good. I, <laughs> I would like to point out one thing first, though. I think I do think it's important. At the end of the Second World War, so at Second World War, the, uh, the population in the United Kingdom about the same as Ukraine. And uh, at the end of the Second World War, um, the United Kingdom and the United people from the United Kingdom, as opposed to colonial forces, numbered about six million. So Ukraine has the population, 
right? It's just the point as to whether they they can get on and train these people and whether they put the effort into it. So if they do, I I don't think they will have a a numbers problem uh, with that regard, Nuno. Just a, a slight difference. I just think that if they could do it in nineteen in the nineteen forties, we can do it now. Yes, but uh, could we arm um, in time? Could we arm six million Ukrainians? We could, but I don't think. I actually don't think Ukraine needs any uh, numbers in that regard. They're not fighting a world war. They're fighting a, a war for their country, right? And I 100% agree with you, right? But I'm saying, if they did, that that was my point, right? If they needed them, uh, the the people are there. Yes, the people are there, but there's there was ample. It's it's hard to compare. It's it's actually hard to compare because um, Second World War. Um, we use a lot of reference to the Second World War, but. We had the Second World War also had fully mobilized the U.S. economy into a, a war economy. It had the British fully mobilized into a war economy in, in a country at war from the very uh, get-go. And then you had also uh, the Canadians with amply mobilized with forces that are far, far bigger than anything the Canadians could feel to, would be able to field anytime soon today, so it's 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 hard to compare. It's 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 um, and on the other side, you had the Germany, the Germans, especially from nineteen forty three onwards, fully mobilized for war. So that's that's it's it's hard to compare. But but that said, if that need arose. Yes, that could probably, if this extends into, if this war in its major operations extend into another year, yes, that we could be looking at that. Um, I don't think it extends to another year, at least um, at scale. The conflict itself will probably extend for years to come. And by that, I mean... Uh, there's no way Ukraine and Russia won't have issues in border disputes uh, in coming uh, decades. There's no way around that. These two countries will be irremediably uh, uh, at, conf- at head with each other, at conflict with each other uh, for the foreseeable, the foreseeable decades. Yeah. There's no... Yes, uh, I mean, David, even if Ukraine reconquers all its territory and makes uh, basically uh, a huge success, and even if Putin is thrown out of power and a number of other things, there's, I don't think there's a a normal uh, Ukraine-Russia relationship in the cards anytime soon. So shall we go to the counteroffensive? We shall. And by the go way, ahead, it also good. doesn't. There doesn't have to be a normal relationship. It's completely fine to have it on a contained, completely utterly deterrence-based armistice basis. We have the same thing between North Korea and South Korea, as long as we support 
the equivalent of South Korea, meaning Ukraine, and even integrate Ukraine into the EU and NATO, this is not an issue. Especially as soon as the integration in NATO has occurred, the value of deterrence is so clear-cut and so strong that Russia will not even dare to pinch Ukraine. It may do other things, try to, you know, infiltrate and to try to um, impair rights and all these kind of things. And it may provoke on a regular basis. But then again, they do the same thing today over Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania since the 1990s. It's nothing new. And since NATO does air policing, they touch, we touch back. It's easy. But there you go. Please, let's go to the counteroffensive. Well, to the counteroffensive, let's go. First of all, I stand, I say we stand on the brink of the counteroffensive. We are close. Um, it's the, the major operations, uh, the, the, the next phase of the counteroffensive after the phase we are on, which are shaping operations, um, is close. I've been thinking about a certain date. And I'll say this because it's not no big deal, because it's just something that occurred to me to, to a sense. I was thinking, if I was Ukraine, when would I want the counter-offensive? What day would I want the counter-offensive? I've thought about this time and again. Uh, I may be wrong. And it may be me, but the day I would want the counter-offensive would be the 6th of June. And why the 6th of June? Uh, I'm not saying they will. It's my assessment again. But thinking about it, why would I want the 6th of June, the, the operation? Axel probably already in, understood why and, and David too, and some of you in the audience too, because it's the anniversary of D-Day. And it would make very powerful strategic communications to launch major offensive operations to free Ukraine on the same day the Allies launched Operation Overlord. It's my view, okay? I'm not saying they will. I'm not saying they won't. I'm just saying from a strategic communications point of view, it would be a great day to launch an operation. We've, I mean, the ads and the strategic communications write themselves, right? It's like uh, clips of Operation Overlords and of Ukrainian forces breaking Russian trenches. It would, um, it's a good way to galvanize the West. So if I had to do it, if I could do it, there's always the military part of this, which is basically... Uh, are they ready to do it? Do they have everything they need in place? Is everything ready? That's I think that's the calculus more than any strategic communications. But if I had to do it, if I could do it, and I had to choose a date, let's say at the 1st of June, we uh, Zalunazny says to Mr. President Zelensky, Mr. President, we have everything we need. Uh, of course, no military commander will, will say he has everything he needs. He will, he will say he's ready. Um, but we are ready. We have uh, the assets in place. 
we can launch when you say so. I would choose the date of the 6th of, Ju of June, 19, uh, 2013, which is the 79th birthday of uh, the, the D-Day of Operation Overlord, which started the, the liberation of Western Europe by uh, the Allies in Second World War. So it would be a date that I will pay attention to because, well, honestly, um, Ukrainians have been extremely good at um, uh, strategic comms. So um, that's a date I would uh, look at as a possible date for this. I don't know if this makes sense, but it's from my view is is um, one possible date for this. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Strategic communications, historic arc and the likes. If the date suits the plans, choose it. Exactly. If it doesn't, choose another. <laughs> choose when it suits. Of course, that's uh, Let's be frank, that that's the big thing here. If the date su suits the plans, uh, if the plans suit the date, fine. If it don't, if they don't, launch the operation when you, you're ready. Uh, uh, which is what happened on D-Day, right? That, because they put it off because the weather wasn't right. So, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the, the reality takes precedence. But, but, uh, we live in an interconnected communications world and information warfare is bigger than it is has ever been. Let's look at us, uh, right? We are here discussing um, from several corners of the world, discussing Ukraine and talking about Ukraine and what they're making and what they're doing and what they're preparing. So in that sense, if you could do it, in that date, it would be a date I would choose to to launch uh, this operation because it's an important historical date in the strategic communication rights itself, right? Um, now, on the counteroffensive, I've written that, and I've said here, that I believe, first of all, they'll more than the critical terrain is Crimea. Let's be frank. That's the critical terrain of all this. That's it. I'm I'm 100% with General Ben Hodges on this and General Mick Ryan. Uh, Crimea is the terrain for this operation. If you liberate Crimea, all the rest comes undone. If you liberate the South, Crimea comes undone. Because Crimea is a peninsula, we've discussed here, you can isolate it, and um, that's that's the way to go. Now, that said, that is an important uh, caveat I would do. Uh, I would say, which is Ukraine. I'm coming to think that Ukraine will focus first on creating effects on the enemy. On an article I wrote recently, I've called it um, the ghost division effect, which is precisely this. If you create enough panic, 
the enemy will not be exactly aware of how big, what forces, in what dimension, in what echelon, sorry, dimension, not dimension, echelon, in what echelon um, penetrated their defense in depth. Let's say if you break several maneuver elements through Russian, Russian line, sorry, and um, I'm with Thomas Steiner on this. Uh, those fortifications suck. Uh, those dragon teeth suck. They don't have the density. They don't have the personnel to man that in density. And um, the Ukrainians uh, know exactly where they stand, who's in there, uh, what reserves they can pull through. They'll probably know this to a greater deal, uh, to a greater extent than the, the Russian military does. And as a friend of mine, we were discussing um, the difficult thing to break fortifications is when you have to break them from contact, from a march to contact. That is when you're uh, advancing in a certain axis and then you get to a fortified position that you know isn't there and you have to execute a combined arms maneuver in a breach of those fortifications from a march to contact. That's difficult. That's really challenging. That's extremely difficult to do. It's doable, but it's complex and it's very, very hard. It's a different game if you're training to storm positions, you know exactly where they are, what's the the, the echelon of enemy forces there, what weaponry they have, what support they have, and you've trained that to exhaustion and you have, basically you trained the set piece battle in a specific location of your choice to break them. That's a whole different ball game. Then uh, that's hard. That's still hard to do. It's still costly, but it's far easier than doing that from a march to contact. I don't know if I made myself uh, clear on this. You did. You did. Okay, it's a different it's a different paradigm because in, in that you know, you basically prepared you trained for a set piece battle right. You know where the enemy is. You know the disposition of the enemy. You know probably better than the enemy command. What does the enemy have there? And you know exactly how you you trained to do it, and you know exactly where to do it. So I don't get all this. Um, how can I put it? I don't get all this uh, craziness about Russian fortifications and Russian dragon teeth and all these people saying that it's uh, basically the second coming of the marginal line, right? Well, if you train, if you didn't know they were there, that could be extremely difficult to do. But if you're preparing to do it uh, in a specific area that you know everything about to the detail, it's still hard, but it's far easier than anything else. It's a set-piece battle. The trick is doing it in a sense that doing it fast enough so you can break maneuver elements into the enemy rear, exploit depth, exploit speed, 
and then have a robust second echelon of forces that will come after to mop up the stragglers, to mop up enemy uh, pockets of resistance and to establish uh, control of the ground and establish control of the area. That's a different ballgame, right? Then, um, and the Ghost Effect Division is, uh, if you break enough forces into the rear of the enemy, if you create panic, a battalion will look like a division, right? Because Russians will be tripping about what they have, what's there, what's, how many forces uh, they've broken through. And it's, that effect is a powerful, powerful effect. And I think that's where the Ukrainians are aiming first and foremost. If you succeed in that, territory will come. And opportunities will arise. Make no mistake. There's going to be a main axis of effort, then one or two supporting efforts. And then there needs to be reserves that will probably exploit success. And success maybe may take very different forms. You can break through in some place you didn't expect to break through. You may face more difficult uh, situations in places where you thought it would be easier. Or you may start a route that you'll have time organizing around. Right? Um, there's there's still the fairly large degree of unpredictable, uh, unpredictable events uh, that will happen. But there needs to be, and I'm sure that Ukrainians have extensively gamed this out with, even with Allied help. And we stand on, on the eve of this. And I think I would say there's going to be a main effort and a few supporting efforts, even if the main effort can look like a few efforts itself. Um, I don't know if there's any questions about this or I'm just really boring. Of course, you're extremely boring. No, but seriously, um, it, it's just very clear. We had a couple of items uh, coming up today, yet again, where activities of the Ukrainian armed forces and specifically uh, shelling long and mid-range artillery, um, shaping operations, hit specific targets which were along the lines of those attack vectors which we've discussed here. Bolovacha, Buledar, down to Mariupol, further south, southeast, and the likes. A few days ago, we had Henichesk, we had Amiansk, we had Skadovsk, all of those along the line across Crimea. The Ukrainians have been hitting, so to say, like an equal opportunity offenders. They've been hitting pretty much every target one would expect them to hit prior to operations. They haven't started operations yet. But they have taken out crucial command posts, depots, logistics setups. They've taken out assembly grounds. They've done everything one would expect. The only places... S-400 command complexes. S-400 command complexes. 100%. The only places which they haven't hit much are in the northeast. Yes. You mean the Svatov, Starobysk axis, right? Exactly. Our favorite. I think honestly i really do think that's going to be there's going to be an operation up north 
I really do think I've said it here many times before. There's, and I think it will start there, honestly. Because, and that would tie in with the Belogorod raid, okay, and the Belogorod action. Because the, if the the forces that are going to be uh, going to Belogorod are probably forces that would be up north. You're not going to pull forces out of Zaporizhia to to go man uh, the borders in the north. I wouldn't. But this is the Russian army, so I'm not really sure, but I wouldn't. Uh, the uh, um, logic would, would say that you pull forces from the nearest AO, the nearest area of operations, and from there you you move uh, up north. Now that's up. Um, with that said, um, I think there's significant space for success up in the north, particularly in this Fatov Starobrisk axis. If this if this axis is broken, it's not easy. But if it's broken, Russians have a problem because Crimea, Severodonetsk, even Lugansk comes into play. And the moment this happens, you face a major dilemma because you either reinforce this to stem it, or uh, you face a large, large contingency. Um, where you may lose access. You may lose, actually, uh, you may find yourself with Lugansk and Severodonetsk uh, in play, which is completely, it's, it would be disastrous for the Russians. I see we have some hands up, so let's go to the questions. ATV, you were first, I believe, so go ahead, please. Um, yeah, you're not boring, mate. <laughs> I look very forward to these um talks with you and then this one is particular thank this you thank particularly you. And just as an aside i think you've really grown not that you're bad before but i think you've really grown um as a speaker on on this medium so um that's my two cents or whatever it's worth probably probably about two cents um i've been thinking about i have a consideration and the consideration in terms of like where to attack how to attack and I, I don't know if it's if it's a consideration at all in a rational military mind or one that you would even have in your top 50 but Basically, the, the further east along Kherson um, that Ukraine um, strikes and, 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 and is presumably able to get to um, the Azov Sea, the higher the ability for them to destroy more of the Russian army, because basically the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula will, will essentially end wherever, wherever that um, axis is. And, and, and it's not a consideration, because if, if, if they were to come down through uh, Tokmak and, and, and down through, you know, uh, west of Melitopol, then, then you're just talking about the Crimean Peninsula and the northern bit of, uh, sorry, that's something. You're talking, you're talking a move towards Mariupol. And, but, yes, because if you, if you hit them at Mariupol, you're... Coming you're, from Vuladar, so Vuladar down south to Mariupol yeah, and Berdyansk, right? if you right? did that, then you basically put half of all of Russian forces on a peninsula and... and your ability to destroy them in place presumably is higher. You agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that, ATV. Okay. I think, uh, I would say here, I think that's one of the main efforts. <clears throat> because 
it's as you say, the moment you create a cauldron with all of the south in Crimea included. Okay, I'm glad to see that I'm not on my own planet this one time. Um, much appreciated. Thank you very much, Nino. No, I think uh, first of all, thank you for for the compliments and experience helps, of course. Um, but um, Mariupol and Berdyansk, I think it's one of the main axes. I honestly do. If you break into there, you not only cut off all of the forces east of it, west of it, sorry, right? But you can also approach Melitopol. You cut off two uh, major uh, supply routes by the ports of Berdyansk and Mariupol. And you cut off any resupply that can come from the east, from the east, from Donetsk. And then there's another thing. You have the ability to approach Melitopol from the south, whereas all of uh, Russian fortifications are up north, which doesn't mean that you'll try, uh, you'll have to do an operation in Tokmak, coming from Poho, uh, from Uliapol or whatnot, to just fix forces there, right? You those uh, multiple forces need to be fixed. But, but, I agree with you. That's one of the places I would use as an axis of of assault. Uh, the Mariupol Berdyansk down south to cut off to immediately create a whole cauldron here. And that would be, that would create total chaos. If that's successful, it creates a whole problem for the Russians immediately. I agree, and you're not uh, uh, incorrect with this. I share that opinion too. Spartan, I think it's uh, it's you, and then Abdul. Please go ahead, Spartan. Thank you, Nuno. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and echo ATB's comments uh, as well. Uh, I do enjoy uh uh, you're at least when you come here and, and speak to us. So, um, I don't know if you recall what last time you were here. I asked about the potential symbolic victory of if Ukraine were to commit the resources and, and take Bakhmut and surround the troops, right? How would that, you know, how much of a political uh, coup that might be for them, right? Uh, because it's something that Russia has publicized quite a bit. Um, so, it, it just the kind of almost piggyback off of uh, uh, ATV's point here, because I, the more I look at the map, I, I'd imagine, uh, by the way, that's my three-month-old daughter in the background. I apologize if you guys are hearing that. Um, yeah. It's all fine. Yeah. So, like, I, I'd imagine one of the things that the Ukrainian general staff would want to do is to make sure that the line of contact, right, doesn't shift in Russia's favor, right? They don't want to, I guess, expand the potential areas of, of the front to the point where it goes from, you know, them having interior, interior lines of defense to potentially having to cover more, more of an, uh, a front that they'd want to. Right. So I, I guess my question is, is that, I mean, is that something you think that is part of what the optimization problem that they're trying to solve right now is how do you make sure you don't overstretch yourself in terms of having too many fronts uh, to, to stabilize and deal with? Yes, I think that's one of the issues here. You could launch some, you could launch a number of efforts at this, but um, 
you need to make sure that you have the ground lines of communication in place so you um, support that effort. And when and the main effort will always be the South. If we're assuming the critical terrain is the South in Crimea, that's the main effort, period. But you don't want to overstretch and it, it's a delicate balance. You don't really want to overstretch, but you want to exploit. And it's it's it really depends on how it goes, Spartan. I mean, as you know, because you're probably a guy with some military experience, this thing takes a life of its own the moment it's on, right? The moment you launch an operation such as this, um, it takes its own. It, it assumes it's it's its own creature, right? Uh, as of, uh, I believe it was Marshal Foch uh, of the French Army said that, uh, and and that was recorded for posterity that no plant survives contact with the enemy. Um, well, it survives contact with the enemy, but uh, it it probably has to have several contingencies, and that's where we are going to see. Um, the true operational art of both sides, especially the Ukrainians, because this is a complex maneuver. You cannot overstretch yourself and you cannot exploit too much and then lose your ground lines of communication to eventual enemy counterattacks. And, but if you produce enough effect on the enemy and on its forces, and, on, and if you create enough disarray, that might not may not be an issue, and I say may because again it's one of those things you can only assess when it's on. Uh, if it's unique, it's a, a delicate balance that will depend much on the commanders on the ground, the the mission command principles, and of uh, the the initiative of. Uh, Ukrainian units, the enemy votes, what the Russian units will do and Russian commanders will do. And of course, uh, it depends very much on what are the critical objectives you want to achieve. Um, but there may be room for in-depth exploitation. There may not be room for in-depth exploitation. But you really need to be careful not to overextend. And uh, when I said uh, a bit earlier, uh, the, the ghost effect division, uh, the ghost division effect, uh, the ghost division was the, the seventh Panzer division led by Erwin Rommel that um, one fine morning arrived uh, uh, so deep into French territory that he realized that he had only his, his reconnaissance screen, right? Uh, and the whole... Uh, uh, and the whole thing was just um, overextended beyond what was reasonable. But at that point, the effect he had on the French army was so large that for all for uh, what what was cons what was French command, there was a whole army corps of Germans uh, in their in their in their rear. When in reality, 
it wasn't an army corps of Germans. It was just a few battalions of the 7th Panzer Division, right? That's the effect I meant, right? And that's something you need to be careful because the matter that it works in that particular instance, it doesn't mean that it will ever work. And Axel here was correcting me. It was not Fosch. It was Helmut von Moltke. Uh, so I'm corrected. I just messed up my quote, military quotes. I'm corrected, Axel. I, I just, <laughs> I sent it to you. Do, you. do with it what you like. I'm just wondering. No, no, I'm corrected. I'm, no, no, good. It's, it's von Moltke, of course. We don't want anyone in the audience saying they what a dumb, what a dumb oh, analyst that no, said no, was Porsche, no. not at all, but for Molke. Yeah, <laughs> not Thank applying, not applying to Fosch has, of course, one sensible background because Fosch learned from this. Don't forget, because he fought. Yes, he did. He fought he did. in the next war, where he couldn't afford to believe that, uh, say. Pre-position plans were so utterly helpful. Unfortunately, he had to learn it also the hard way there because all the plans the French general staff had went to shit. Yes, because some guy exploited in depth uh, more than he should and created, and that goes to my point, he created an effect on the enemy that was so vast that nobody knew uh, exactly what elements were there. Uh, but the issue here uh, is, you're right, Spartan. I mean, it's it's clearly a delicate balance that will only... It's one of those things that you assess when it's on. I mean, there's no way around it. You can plan all you want, but how far, how deep... You probably... I'll, I'm betting that Ukrainian military will end up exploiting some directions that they didn't intend to in the first run, right? Because opportunity arises, they're not as defended as they thought, and a number of variables can, can come into this. I hope that answers the question, Spartan. It, it, it does. I mean, I was, was thinking back to the Kharkivit offensive when, uh, you know, as you were talking, right? And one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen was the Ukraine army basically being getting to Sarobilsk, if I'm not mistaken. I apologize if I butcher that, right? And then turning back because they don't want to extend themselves. Uh, I, I I was just blown away um, just by just the self-awareness of the command there. Um, I, I Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I do have a follow-up question. I'm gonna, You'll I'm gonna... probably get encircled. Oh, go, go oh yeah, no, please, no, 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 I'll, 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 uh, I'll wait until after uh, Abdullah Matthias. Um, no, no, go ahead. Just so, ask it. Ask it and uh, yeah. we'll address then uh, uh, Matthias and uh, Abdul. Abdul and Matthias, sorry. I, thank you. So, so like, just... Just looking at the events of the last couple of weeks with the uh, Free Russian Legion, et cetera, and what's happening in Belgrade, um, I, what, what I took away from that was the chessboard is much bigger, and the Ukrainians see it as, as a much bigger chessboard. Um, and, I mean, just theoretically speaking, if uh, Belarus became a little bit more, became, you know, destabilized by Lukashenko's uh, absence, right, would you potentially see additional partisan activity a little further north along the maybe Belarus border, or is that too much of a stretch? I wouldn't put it past uh, German, uh, Ukrainian military intelligence uh, to, if 
let's say Lukashenko dies, uh, his health deteriorates and Lukashenko dies. I wouldn't put it past uh, Ukrainian uh, who to launch uh, eventually some operations by Belarusian volunteers or some of the best units uh, in the foreign region to, if they're not involved uh, in the counteroffensive, in to support eventual protests and eventual in, eventual splitting of the the Belarusian forces uh, in in Belarus. It's it's. Let's hope Lukashenko doesn't die when the counteroffensive is ongoing. But if he does, I I wouldn't I wouldn't exclude anything because one of the things I appreciate and, and I'm a confessed fanboy of, of General Budanov. One of the things I I I appreciate about his military thinking and his intelligence uh, operational thinking is his ability to um, think outside of the box. Is ability. It's a. I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll say that of course he he does that because he's a special operations guy, uh, but it's true. The guy thinks um, aggressively. The guy thinks of operations um, in a in an unconventional way, and I love it. It's just it's just a special operator in me that loves that, and I think. The man, if he sees opportunity and if he sees um, a way to to exploit opportunity, he he kind of embodies the SAS motto of "Who dares wins," right? So he just may launch uh, operations there, uh, along with the counteroffensive. It would be tricky, partner. I mean. Depends on so many factors, and we would be international uh, creating uh, a more international conflict, and that creates some additional problems. Would have a lot of people tripping, but I wouldn't put it. Uh, one of the things, actually, for the future, uh, to to conclude this, um, one of the things for the future that Russian intelligence services will need to think, even after the war in Ukraine is um, if when they are doing thinking of doing any operation anywhere in the world, one of the things they've just inherited is... Nuno, you're breaking up. Nuno, you're breaking up. You want to repeat this? I can confirm that as well. No audio, Nuno. If you can hear us. Yes. Okay, I thought so. That was probably one uh, what one call pushed away, another one coming right away. No, no, you come back up. I'll send you an invite, and then we continue. And while we're and while we're doing that, I'm just going to read something out if we can. Uh, it was interesting. It says exciting breaking news. Here you see the true Russian and Wagner values. The real Wagner founder is, you decide for yourself. Chief Wagner answered the cadre. Oh, he's back. He's, he is neat quick. Okay, I, I won't say any more. David, you have to Hello, Nuno, you're back. Finish the sentence. Can you hear me now? No, <laughs> we can. Ah, okay, okay. 
I know I had a call come in and then another call come in immediately. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's exactly uh, it's what I said. No, yeah, whilst exactly. you were interrupted, David started a sentence to tease up the audience for a topic and he failed to end that sentence. David, please finish it. And then we turn back to Nuno. I, it's not the it's not the first time or the last time I'll face it. I'll face to finish the sentence. I will say, okay, I'll finish the sentence. Uh, not Prigozhin, but the founder of the PMC who never enters the media plane. But here, for the first time, he decided to speak out. I will t- say, read out the rest of the tweet after this. There we are. Back to Nuno. So, Abdullah, please go ahead. Yes, Nuno, a couple of things. First, I don't know if you've seen, the Russians have been blowing up the roads that they used, you know, to come in into Ukraine in that three-day operation to capture to capture Kiev. So I was just wondering, earlier you mentioned that you won't be surprised to see any offensive operations in the north. What do you make of this, this action by the Russians? And then I will have a follow-up. I think the Russians don't want any, any more... Uh, Legion or RDK fighters uh, running into <laughs> into Russians or into Russia's borders because they don't have the, the assets in place to guarantee border security. I think that's the, the main issue for them. Uh, but that's a, a, quite a testament to to the state of their military operation. When you blow up the bridges, you were supposed to use to invade Kiev in three days not to get invaded by Russians out of Ukraine. That's quite the, the twist of fate to an extent. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, an interesting, it's an interesting uh, tidbit for sure. And, and it's telling because this, is, this has been um, a history of diminishing results for the Russians, right? We went from... Uh, Ukraine in three weeks to Kiev in three days to um, uh, we're blowing up bridges so some Russians don't invade us at the behest of Ukrainian military intelligence. That's quite a stretch in a year's time, in a year and a half almost uh, time. But uh, what's the follow-up question, Abdullah, please? Yeah, the follow-up question is that earlier you said all roads leads to Crimea. Uh, earlier this week, we had some discussion about the bridge, the Kerch Bridge. There are some of us who say that the bridge should be taken down. Maybe we leave the, the passenger side and take down the rail. And then there's, there, are, there are those of us who say we should take out the whole bridge. Uh, because those who say that we should leave... Uh, an access valve, an escape valve for the for the Russians to escape. What do you what do you say to this? Uh, what side are you on? I'd say don't destroy the bridge at all for now. Why? Because the more forces Russia brings into Crimea, the more supplies they bring into Crimea, the better. Destroy the bridge when you're able to isolate Crimea. In the meantime, some civilians will escape, which will facilitate military targeting uh, in Crimea. Once, once operations, let's assume that Ukraine is very successful in the south. Once that happens, uh, Russian civilians will start abandoning Crimea. That is something that facilitates military operations. 
because it's easier to do targeting on a more uh, blanket area targeting if you don't have a lot of civilians to worry about. And then the more forces the Russians bring into Crimea right now, the more forces are trapped into Crimea right now. And I know this sounds kind of strange because it would be uh, it would be harder to defend, it would be harder to take Crimea, but think about it. If they bring supplies into Crimea, more than forces, if they bring ammo and stocks of all kinds of supplies into Crimea, the moment you isolate it, in the moment you're in a position to isolate it and control it by fire, by deep strike, but not even deep strike by artillery uh, and MLRS in deep strike fires, it's the moment you should cut off all resupply lines to Crimea. Because then you have a lot of Russians trapped there with a lot of stock that's not going anywhere and that you can target more freely. So I would take out the bridge the moment I could do this. Then I would take out the bridge. The moment I could hammer the, the air bases and the ports and everything I can find as a suitable target in Crimea, that's when I would uh, cut off the bridge completely. Okay, I, will, I hope that answers the question, but that's my, my thinking on this. Perfect, perfect. Thank you, Nuno. Thanks. Thank you, Matthias. Please go ahead. Thanks, Nuno. Yeah, so my question is, or first an observation that I question. The first is, with the Russians on the defensive, there are a couple of problems or weaknesses that they have to deal with that the Ukrainians can exploit, right? One is that the front line is very long compared to the number of troops that Russia has, right? And not just that, they need to station reserves to counter wherever the main efforts are. I think I agree with you. Mariupol and Berdyansk is likely to be the main effort at some point. I think the Belgrade partisan activities is such a brilliant move in that way. It lengthens the front line significantly and puts pressure over a longer area, right? And I wouldn't be surprised for that reason if we would, as you said, see some activities in Svatovo, maybe towards Starobilsk, maybe even crossing over Dnieper to kind of keep that stretch going. But the second thing I think they could exploit, and here's my question, is um, the command structure of Russian forces in Ukraine. From what I understand, it's still not that they don't still don't have unified uh, unity of command, right? So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the, how many different command structures the, uh, the Russians are using currently? And if it was you, what would you do to exploit that uh, as much as possible from the Ukrainian side? For example, to create dilemmas like, is it this command structure in these units or this other command structure in these units that should be responding to, to pressure in a certain region, which could be difficult to uh, uh, deconflict. So does that make sense, my question? It makes sense. Um, I think when, when, the, when I say effects on the enemy as one of the main goals uh, is exactly that, to create surmounting problems right, uh, to enemy command. And yes, they have different command structures, but they have a sort of unified command in Gerasimov. 
even even if you have Prigozhin running his own war and you have the Republic guys at the, the LPR and the DNR running mostly under Russian uh, Armed Forces Command, but severely depleted, and you have uh, uh, the, the governor of Crimea creating his own PMC. And so there's, if you have the chance to hit critical command structures, do it, uh, do it now, do it now. And they have done it to an extent, even with the irregular activity in Lugansk. Uh, but most of all, if you're trying to produce an effect, you need to to extend um, the operational in, uh, environment and you need to create more and more uh, surmounting dilemmas for enemy command, especially one command that is not as unified as it should be. Uh, you mentioned, for instance, uh, a crossing of the Dnipro uh, in Kherson. I think that's coming. I honestly, I honestly do think that's coming. Because if you cross the Dnipro in Kherson, along in Novokakova or eventually Kherson, and you race to the entrance, and you race significant maneuver elements to the entrance of Crimea, you don't need to enter Crimea. You're basically trapping uh, everyone in there, right? And you're threatening the forces in Mariupol and in Mariupol, sorry, in, in Melitopol and in the south, from the south. If that makes sense. So this will be about exploiting several axes at the same time in creating a Problems for Russian command, which is not as unified, is not as, as um, uh, it doesn't have unity of overall command because you have significant fighting forces that respond to either Prigozhin, to Kadyrov, to the republics. And that's something that should uh, that i think uh, uh, russian command in moscow is probably uh, m- very much aware that they this is the blanket problem right you cover the head you uncover the feet you cover the feet you uncover the head it's it doesn't stretch and the only way you could make it stretch is is it's if in winter you'd mobilize enough people to throw at this, right? Which the Russians haven't. Yes, they could still throw about 150,000 conscripts at this, sure. But I'm not really sure. Uh, first of all, they need to declare war. And then I'm not really sure if uh, at this point in time that would make a difference. And that that honestly is what baffles me. Because, I mean, Russian command should know what's coming. And if they know what's coming, they should uh, tell political leadership, uh, listen, we need more men, more hardware, and we did them yesterday. But is it fair to say that they have never, sorry, not never, it's wrong, rarely during the past now 16 months, utilized 
whatever data they can derive from their own satellites, they have rarely seemingly interpreted in a way which any sensible, serious, kernel level and above um, planner would have done in any Western army. And not just today, but pretty much since we use satellites, they must be able, oh, sorry, they should have been able to interpret the data by means of having staff, expert staff, highlighting what they see to then derive an operational picture, potential moves, and then escalate the data upwards. But seemingly, it, it already is bad enough at the interpretation level. I'm not going to go there to say that they can't even read their satellite data at all. But it, it starts being a difficulty seemingly at the interpretation level. Then it's not escalated upwards seemingly appropriately. And whoever gets it, gets it does not know what to do with the data. And then they can't coordinate whatever kind of strategies they should actually, sorry, strategies, tactics, operational uh, plans they should derive from that or how they should actually evolve in their planning from it. Or am I completely utterly wrong? Because whenever no, there were correct. movements, whenever there were movements by the Ukrainians, they must have been seen to an extent by the Russian side. They have massive EW capability. They are able to deter the, uh, the Ukrainian Air Force. They are able to hit Ukrainian targets. They are able to do counter-battery fire. So they, on the battery level, <clears throat> on the, almost likely this will be a cardinal, somewhere, on the tactical level, in uh, the second edge, they are able to at least assess as to what to do. But how can they be so unable to gather the data together and derive a proper plan? I don't know. That that baffles me too. I mean, they should be the geospatial aspect of the Russian uh, capability or the space-based assets of Russia are probably not working as they should at a very high extent. I would say that I've heard some numbers around 20-30% from fairly well-informed sources that say that if that's the case, they believe they have 20 to 30 percent of their satellites operational. But this, um, but even the you could re do flight reconnaissance, use flights, use uh, electronic warfare capability, they have a fairly interesting reconnaissance capability. So why can't they uh, cook up a plan to to go to the Kremlin and say, listen, we need this X, Y, Z things to make this work. And one of them is men. We need more people to make this work. I mean, Gherkin, thank God, has no uh, sway in the Russian military because the guy's right. He's a war criminal, but the guy's right. Prigozhin is right. They need more men. They know that. I mean, uh, it's impossible for me to understand how does the general staff of the Russian military, uh, the Russian armed forces, doesn't look at this and say, "Listen, we need to go to the boss and say, well, Vladimir, we need more men. 
you mobilize, more, declare war. Let us have another 500,000. Let's go. Let's set forth in a total war um, path. Why this charade? Why this charade of a, a special military operation? When they're clearly failing. Why this charade of a, a special military operation? I know it's political. I know, yes, the Kremlin wants to keep it that way. doesn't want to declare war and whatnot. But why doesn't the Russian military say, uh, listen, we need, if you want us to win this, we need X, Y, Z. And we're probably late for that. Anyhow, I can't, I, there's got to be some reasons for that. Um, due to the system itself, to whatever considerations even the command has. But I I really don't have an answer for that, Axel. I really don't. And when I don't, I don't. That's fine. But it, it's, it's a strange fact. So we, we'll have to just observe this because at some point in time, maybe a few months from now or after the war, we will find that out. Because I, I would love to know what I would hope our friends know and can't tell us, and what Budanov hopefully must know and won't tell us. Yes, I I think there's a number of, of um, there's a number of people who probably have a good idea on this and what is the reason for this. But let's wrap this up today with Matthias. Please, Matthias, go ahead and and then we have another question. Let's wrap these two questions up, and that's it for today. Uh, go ahead, Matthias, please. Yeah, I just I think the answer to that question is I think it's pretty clear. Like at, at the strategic level, the people who are in charge are just complete morons and incompetent, right? Shoigu hasn't even done military service. And Vladimir Putin is completely incompetent and uh, as every strategic decision has been the wrong one uh, from beginning and end. For example, the whole Bakhmut offensive of wasting 100 plus thousand men, complete uh, strategic blunder. Um, the decision on how to use uh, intercontinental uh, cruise missiles and, and not intercontinental, but the cruise missiles and attacking and the civilian missiles. yeah yeah the civilian population does absolutely zero to degrade uh, Ukrainian military capability it's yes. an incredible strategic blunder and uh, the whole unified command thing it, it just goes on and on like I think it has to do with uh, the the culture in terms of how power is wielded in Russia and how incredibly low on the totem pole uh, that the military has always been. The military yes, is, the little, is the little dog that you throw a bone to. It's never been respected. So what... The uh, true power uh, is the security services. Yes. And also, if you ever had a competent general in the Russian military, and this was even before Vladimir Putin, you killed them off. 40, 50 of them have been killed off historically over both um, uh, Yeltsin and, and Putin's era. So it just has to do with 
there's never going to be enough respect for military leadership and and the people who are actually military leadership aren't listened to at all and the people who do call the shots are incompetent uh, that's how sad this is i think everything and, is down to from culture and, and i think you're correct Matthias. i mean that's that's a that's a good interpretation yes i i can see that i can see that easily um it's also about the power of what some people call the power vertical where uh, everyone competes with everyone else to bring good news to the boss and that generates this kind of uh, fantasy environment that then um, gets us this incompetence this incompetence and you're right about the military the Russian military of, uh, of Russian security services and Favi Darrell, and I think we'll end up with you. Please go ahead. You know, Abogado, thanks so much for being here. Everybody retweet and share the space. Let everybody know you're in mariareport.org. It's 24-7 live space here on Twitter. No, no, we started with a map in the space about two and a half hours ago. Uh, what do, if I could bring it back to a map question uh, for the pressing of Crimea? Uh, there is, um, I want to speak to you about airfields and the Sevastopol military naval station base. Um, I see it as something that the Ukrainians might try to get to quickly, whether over land or by air or by long-range uh, long strike and then take the land. I'd like to uh, elicit your thoughts on how they might do this, including the northeasterly one, Zukhoi, or Zuhoi it's called. Um, Saki is involved. And then, interestingly, you know, to pivot from Russia crumbling inside back to the sharp end of the spear where Ukraine are, how might they then use these bases, uh, naval and air, airships, to project their own power liberate their own land and then to menace the Russians or should I say keep the Russians in their box which will be a future uh, objective. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Favid, thank you uh, so much. I think, first of all, uh, when uh, Ukraine uh, secures the, the land corridor, you'll probably have a situation where they can reach most of, most of these targets with the uh, uh, GMLRSs, and even some of them with artillery. But for now, you can reach them with Storm Shadow, of course. And eventually, if the U.S. supplies attackums, uh, you can reach them with uh, with attackums. And if the F-16s come into play, you'll, you'll be able to reach them with a joint strike missile, joint air-to-surface air strike missile, the JSAM. And... Um, that's uh, uh, that's a significant capability. I actually think that um, missiles such as the Storm Shadow and the JSM are more interesting for the Ukrainians than Attackums, even if Attackums is uh, a very uh, robust capability, especially at operational level, with um, with. Uh, uh, the ability to give commanders a deep strike weapon, divisional commanders deep strike weapon. So, because Storm Shadows and JSAMs will always be uh, strategic level uh, operations coordinated by the Air Force out of uh, uh, EVE, and uh, ATACMs will give uh, ground commanders, divisional commanders, uh, an ability, let's say, a, a very robust shotgun to hit uh, Russians with uh, in deep strike assets. 
but I think Saki, Sevastopol, and other military bases will be within reach of of Ukrainian command, Ukrainian forces in the south. That's for sure, and they will uh, probably look at that as a as one of the main goals to to isolate Crimea. You'll need to hit the airfields. You'll need to hit uh, the um, the naval, uh, uh, naval, the ports, the naval bases, the naval base, and then the bridge. So that will have to be long-range uh, strike assets in the immediate, and eventually um, uh, guided uh, MLRS uh, launches um, by HIMARS and M two seventy to to hit. Once you're in within the, you're able to control it by fire. But the moment you're able to control it by fire. Russia has lost because you can isolate the peninsula and they cannot muster any significant formation without getting hammered. And that's their problem. And those lines of communication out of Crimea are just small. So in that sense, it's easy to strike at. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, that's marvelous. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your insight and I value your answer. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Axel, I think, David, I think we're uh, wrapped it up for today. Um, we're sorted and, with Crimea, uh, are we? With one... Uh, before you, yeah, but before you say so, Crimea, you say but... so no, no. When, when Crimea Beach, you haven't bet on the pool. There's a large pool going here. Everybody is sending me messages. I'm getting a staccato. I'm tired of it. Tell us when the Crimean, the Kerch Bridge will be hit and whether it will be hit only on the roadside or the rail connection or both. <laughs> you have totally to... destroyed. Totally destroyed. Totally destroyed. When? What do you think? Uh, after uh, you've secured uh, the ability to isolate Crimea in the south. I agree with you, but when do you think that would be? <laughs> um, September, October. Okay, all right. You're the furthest out. I'll take that. Let's just say, for the sake of the bet, uh, would the fourth week of September be okay? Early October. Okay, all right. We'll take the first week of October then. All right, I'll note you down for it. First (laughs) First week of October. Okay, good. Fair enough. You have to pay 10 10 bucks into the pool, but we'll solve that separately. And um, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> First week of October. That's my bad. Excellent. Thank you, Nuno. Sincerely Excellent. appreciate it. Everyone, thank you so though. much. Thank you so much for this. And uh, we'll, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get back to this probably, well, if not uh, next week, probably at the same time. But if I'm, if my divinatory arts are uh, anything to go by um, with a little luck on Sunday, we'll be back at this. And Sunday, no, sorry, Wednesday, we'll be back at this. Wonderful. I'm still betting. I'm still betting on the sixth of June. All right. We I, they, I'm, I'm, I'm David. When well, the- exactly. I, I'm I'm with Nuno, obviously, on the 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 uh, the uh, the sixth of June. <laughs> the, uh, yes, yes. Go I'd time. say I'd say it's I don't know. Just 
for a country that's so apt in uh, uh, in in strategic communications, if you're ready, it would be a, an interesting date to go. Yes, and I would just highlight, I was only four metres away from the original, uh, at the uh, meteorological report for D-Day uh, for quite a while. Yep, history in the making. Okay. It would be good to watch some more. Let's hope so. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, pleasure and, uh, and privilege. Next, see you next week, guys. Bye bye. Cheers. Take care, uh, Nuno. Privilege, bye, bye, bye. Cheers. privilege bye, bye. and a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. bye.